year, which is an astronomical number, by the way. That's like, un- pastors don't do that. That's, that's a ton of work. And just, uh, you know, in my own preparation this week, I was, conf- I was reminded, yes, that is a lot of work to do that every week. And so um, I appreciate you doing that for us and faithfully feeding us the way that you do. Um, yeah. Um, he usually misses for two reasons, uh, vacation or a family emergency. This week, his, uh, if you know, some of you may know, his grandmother passed away, and so they were out of town this week for that. Um, but they made it back, and they're here this morning, so it's good to have you guys. Um, uh, the Barnes family, if you know us, you know we have three kids. Um, we've got Nathan, who's 12, Rebecca, who is 10, and Hudson, who's 6. And... Um, my wife and Amanda and I, when we go to bed, that is like the signpost for the day that we made it. When we get the kids down and we get to our bed, it's like, we did it. You know, we, we made it through a day. And uh, it's a, so for us, bedtime is this real treasure to be enjoyed. It really is. The three Barnes children, on the other hand, have somewhat of a different perspective on bedtime. Um, Bedtime is not a treasure to be enjoyed. It is, in fact, an obstacle to be avoided. Uh, and almost at any cost. Uh, I've coined this phrase. I, there's a, there's a verb that I use called one more thinging it. So the kids, the barn kids, oh, they're, they're just, just, just one more thing. We're, oh, can we just do one? Can I, can I just say one more thing? Oh, yeah, one more, one more, one more. I go, hey kids, we're not one more thinging it tonight. We're going to bed, you know? Um, and so, uh, from the beginning, Amanda and I have known that to make the Barnes family Devo a consistent part of our lives, it would have to happen at bedtime. That's just, we, were, we knew we were going to have laser focus from the kids, and we're like, okay, we're, we're just going to position it to bedtime, and they'll be all in. And really, I would say almost every night, I mean, you know, we probably miss, you know, we, we, we're not, we miss some, but most nights since our 12-year-old was born, we've read, prayed, and on occasion um, sang together at bedtime. It's not fancy. It's certainly not sophisticated at all. Um, we read a selection either from the Bible or from some other resource about the Bible. Uh, you know, if you're if you've got small kids, um, you know, we've loved the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, we've loved the Gospel Story Bible by a guy named Marty Mikowski. There's a really cutely titled book called Theology. Uh, it's a systematic theology for kids. It's really great. And there's another book called The Radical Book for Kids by a guy named Champ Thornton. Right now, we're about three-quarters of the way through Samuel's two writings, which are creatively titled First and Second Samuel. Um, during our time in those books, uh, we've seen all sorts of stuff. It's pretty action-packed uh, in a lot of ways. Um, we've seen God's people reject his kingship and foolishly demand a king. We saw Saul anointed as king, and then we watched King Saul repeatedly disregard God's commands. We saw Saul lose his anointing as king, and that meant that God was no longer with him. Then we watched Saul's jealousy completely consume him, as listening to the women saying Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands was more than he could stand. So he spent his remaining days seeking to kill David. And then we see David become king. And what a marked change in kingship that is. We read of remarkable faithfulness to God. David wept when he learned of Saul's death 
And not because he was so relieved this guy that was trying to kill him was gone, but because God's anointed king was dead. He wept. I'm thinking, how do you not just feel this overwhelming relief? It's unbelievable, David's character. Um, We saw David uh, take out a number of people who sought in various ways to um, pay back Saul's family for the ways that Saul treated David. Uh, David was not having that. Uh, you don't you don't come against God's anointed, even if He's coming against you. That was David's mentality. In Second Samuel nine, we saw David send his servants on a mission to find every remaining relative of Saul. Why? Because he was going to ensure that for the rest of their lives, Saul's relatives ate at his table and had everything they needed. They only found one remaining relative. Such the sweetest story of Mephibosheth. I love to read that text. It is so sweet. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Jonathan was David's best friend on the earth. Um, he was So Jonathan is Saul's son. And now Mephibosheth is uh, Jonathan's son. He's this crippled man. Um, and the way the story, it's really brief, but it sort of presents... Mephibosheth is this guy that doesn't really have a whole lot to bring to the table. You know, he's crippled. He's, he's not able to work like other people are. He's not impressive. And, uh, and David shows mercy to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is seated at David's own table, gets all this huge inheritance, all the land that was Saul's. Mephibosheth gets it. And Mephibosheth makes this comment that I love. He says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Uh, that just brings me to almost to tears every time I read these. I think if that's not the cry of the gospel right there, love that. Then in 2 Samuel 10, we see David, who had no reason to think God wouldn't deliver the Ammonites into his hand, instead seek to maintain this peaceful relationship with them after their king Nahash died. Nahash had been somewhat of a friend to David, and so David was going to try to continue to show mercy to them. Uh, in foolishness, the Ammonites weren't having any of that, and so David wiped them out. But David's initial uh, thought there, his initial goal, was to maintain peace and to show mercy to the Ammonites, whom he knew he could have taken out. And then we get to Second Samuel 11. In the previous chapters, David's actions seem so clearly driven by love. But notice the contrast here. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and he said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Um, You notice I skipped uh, verse 1 there. Uh, That's not because I don't necessarily think there's anything important there. Um, It's uh, it's that I I don't know that the point that is sometimes made from verse 1, I'm totally sold on it. Sometimes you hear people say David's problem was that he was in the wrong, but he was supposed to be off at war. He was in the wrong place. There's no, not that I can find anywhere, there's no clear scriptural warrant to say that David was sinning for not being off at war. That may be the point of that text, but I'm just not sold on it, and so I'm not going to make that point. 
So that's why I picked up in verse 2. Um, when we read this text with our kids, I think it was Hudson that asked what this meant. Well, David committed the sin of adultery. And adultery, children, is what happens when a married person acts like he or she is married to someone else. And parents, you can breathe now. That part is over. Okay. Um, uh, marriage was created by God in part to show the world what Jesus' relationship with the church is like. And because of that, marriage and the violation of it is a huge deal to God. Huge deal. And of course, this whole scene sounds nothing like the loving, faithful, righteous David that Samuel had written about prior to this chapter. Noting the change, one commentator, I'm going to call him one commentator because I can't pronounce his last name. It's something like Brueggemann or something like that. I don't know. He says this, the action here is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There is no adornment to the action. The woman then gets some verbs. She returned. She conceived. The action is so stark. There's nothing but action. There's no conversation. There's no hint of caring, of affection, of love. Only lust. David does not call her by name, does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman in verse 5. The verb that finally counts is conceived, but the telling verb is he took her. So Bathsheba here is pregnant with David's baby. Now remember that her husband, Uriah, has been gone to war for quite a while now. And so what's going to happen when Uriah gets home and does some real simple math and figures out that he wasn't even home when his wife got pregnant? Well, David has a solution for that. And here it is, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. David is giving this, he has to have a reason to call this guy home, right? You can't just call a man home from war. And so it's, we have to see how the war is going. We have to get an update. And that's really why Uriah is there. Um, but what he really wanted was for, for, was that verse eight there, Uriah, hey, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, what is he assuming is going to happen when he goes down to his house? He's going to lay with his wife, right? He's been gone for months. That's what he's assuming and hoping is going to happen. In other words, he's hoping Uriah is going to bail him out of this. It's not not like they're going to do a DNA test, figure out who the dad is, right? Uh, So if he could just get him to go home and do what husbands do, then all would be well in the world in David's mind. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. And in verse 9, David's hating this. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Listen to this comment. I mean, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. That's tents. 
and my lord Joab, and the, so that's the commander, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. It's hard for me to fathom that David didn't buckle right here and just go, okay, you're killing me with all this godliness stuff you're throwing on me. Man, I'm a terrible person. Here's what I did. But David keeps going. Then David said to Uriah, verse 12, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. David's thinking, okay, if I can just get his sensibilities a little bit compromised, then we got this thing, we got, we got it in the bag. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of, the, of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. This Uriah, he's such a noble man, he's not going to have that. Uh, he, he is not going to take advantage of some benefit that the, that the rest of the men he's serving with cannot have. He's not that guy. Uh, and it seems that no matter what David throws at him, he cannot get this man to compromise. This guy is going to do right by his people no matter what. So what does David do? Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. There's the death order right there. We're going to kill this man now. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Notice up there in verse 14 how the death warrant for Uriah got to Joab. Uriah delivered it. David seals up a letter, and he knows this is the kind of guy I can trust. I can trust this man. If I hand this guy a letter that's sealed, he wouldn't dare open it. He wouldn't even think of it. He's going to deliver it, and he's going to be killed because of it. Uh, that's just an unbelievable. It's hard to fathom doing that, isn't it? I mean, sending, you've, you've identified a trustworthy person, and so you send this trustworthy man to take his own death warrant to the person who's going to carry it out. Unbelievable. Verse 18, Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. He instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. 
for the sword devours now one and now another. So he says, hey, yeah, we've, we've lost a whole bunch of people here. Don't be discouraged about that. Get back in there. We're going we're gonna to win this thing. Don't worry about those lost lives, especially since Uriah is one of them. We're good. We're good. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, David's solution here was not to repent. Instead of confessing his sin to Uriah and begging for forgiveness, David had him murdered. Why? Because the widow of a dead man is available for marriage. Right? And so how's David going to cover this thing up? Well, he's going to do the noble thing. This, this woman's husband was off fighting valiantly at war. And as it turns out, he was struck dead. And that leaves her in a vulnerable position as a woman. So never fear. Noble David will come along and he will marry her. He will take her to be his own and he will care for her. And that's the whole idea here. David thinks, he legitimately thinks he's just going to cover this thing up. It's going to be no big deal. Now, as stark of a contrast as this event is to David, to the David Samuel wrote about to this point, at the end of the day, I'm really not shocked that it happened. I'm really not. And I bet you're not either. Um, if you're like me, there's at least a couple of reasons why. Uh, one is I think the more we read something, the more we can allow ourselves to be not shocked by things. That's the danger of the gospel, right? That we read it so much, we become so familiar with it, and it just doesn't shock us anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't surprise us. Um, there's a couple of other reasons. One reason I'm not shocked is I know what people are like. like I know what people are like. If you haven't noticed, the biblical description of human nature is, well, Bad. Like, it's really, really bad. Uh, you know, Paul quotes those, uh, I think, nine passages from the Old Testament there in Romans 3. Uh, no one is good, not even one. None is righteous. Uh, the, the venom of vipers or asps is on their lips. Their throat is an open grave and so on and so on. It is a horrible depiction uh, of human nature in the scriptures. Um, Charles Spurgeon famously said, you cannot slander human nature. It is worse than words can paint it. What a comment. You can't slander human nature. It's worse than words can paint it. Unbelievable. Um, and we can certainly see this all around us. I mean, if you, if you have a social media account of any kind, I don't have to tell you that the world is messed up, right? That sin is everywhere. Like It's all in your face all the time, all the time, all the time. And so I know what people are like, and so this doesn't really shock me. But I also know what I'm like. Um, I don't even need to look around to see how bad human nature really is. Um, you know, God rescued me and gave me a brand new nature. I have the Holy Spirit living inside of my person. And yet I can still find traces of this old man all over my life. I still find evidences of human nature all over me. I still see it. Um, my sin may look different than David's. Uh, you know, I've not committed adultery and I certainly haven't, you know, murdered somebody. Um, but I've seen that same impulsiveness, that same selfishness, and that same folly in my life. 
I've seen so many situations in my life where I've literally been one decision away, one split second decision away from like making a wreck of my whole life. Literally one moment, one decision, my life could have been completely different in the worst possible way. And I see God just having protected me in those ways. But I can see that my own nature, if I gave in to my own nature, if God had not protected me from myself, I mean, there is no telling what kind of evil I'd be capable of. I was saved back in 1999. Um, and uh, a friend of mine that um, uh, I, I played basketball with this guy. It was, it was, the, it was the father of a good friend of mine. And uh, he had, a, he had a, a son who was one year older than me, a son who was one year younger than me. And I was sandwiched right in between them. And the four of us would go play basketball at this little health club in our hometown. And... Um, at first, I was just seeing these guys up there. I just see it when I go, and and eventually, the dad grabs my phone number. He goes, "Hey, man, uh, man, we love playing with you. You know, can we can we call you? Can we can, can we kind of plan to be here the same?" I was like, "Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, it's awesome. You know." Well, he's I'm planning to play basketball. He's planning to tell me about Jesus, right? And so, and he does eventually. I mean, you know, he he does. He tells me the gospel, um, and I and I'm pretty sure I believe it when he says it. You know, I think I believed it. But about two weeks later, that that school shooting at Columbine, if you remember this, back in 99, uh, happened. And I remember just, I was watching this on the television, and the thought that struck me was, why wasn't I the shooter? Like, why wasn't I the shooter? I'm made out of the exact same stuff that that guy is. I'm just like him. I am that man. And it just, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, that the only reason I'm not on TV for doing that kind of stuff is because of God's restraining grace in my life. That's it. God preserved and protected me, and that's why I'm not that man. And the gospel that this guy had told me just a couple of weeks earlier, all of a sudden, man, it lit a fire. I thought, oh my gosh, I, I need salvation. I need Christ. I need to be saved. And so this story doesn't shock me because I know people, and more than that, I know myself. Um, and I'm sure you relate. You know, I'm sure you, all of you can tell stories like that, you know, where um, you have these moments where you come to realize and you're just confronted with the reality of your own sin. And I think that's why stories like this don't really shock us very much. Um, but I want us to notice here how God responds to David. Uh, does he show grace or discipline? Let's take a look. Uh, verse uh, Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. 
and because he had no pity. And then famously here in verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. This story is about you, David. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. In other words, God's saying, if this wasn't enough, I would have given you anything you wanted. Anything. Am I not taking care of you in the most extravagant ways, David? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So here's point of discipline number one from the Lord right here. The sword will never depart from his house. He will always be at war for the rest of his life. There will be no peace in his land. He will always be at war. That's penalty number one or discipline number one. Verse 11, um, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So this is point of discipline number two. Uh, David's own family members are going to come against him. And of course they do, right? David's own family members are going to come against him now. So not only is the war going to be out there with other nations, it's going to be inside his own house. And listen to this one. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Now, when David committed adultery, it was secret, right? See, it was in the evening at night. No one knew who's going to know. It's a big hush-hush thing. The adultery that's going to happen with David's wives is going to be nothing of the sort. It's going to be like open season with his wives, and everyone's going to, it's going to be the talk of the town. Everyone's going to know. And so David's going to be at war outside his house. He's going to be at war inside his house, and he's going to be exposed repeatedly to public shame and humiliation and have the pain of his own wife being with other men. But God's discipline is not done here. Verse 12, for he did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. You know, as a parent, I've often uh, thought about this question. I've heard people bat it around, you know. Um, do we, when our child disobeys, do we show grace or do we show discipline? And I would say that's a false dichotomy. That, that's not the choices that we make. We show the grace of discipline, right? And that's exactly what God does here. And you think, is, is this really grace? Oh, my gosh. And this is like terrible war outside his house, war inside his house, public shame, the death of his child. Is this really grace? Um, you see, God brings about horrifically painful consequences for David's sin. But but here's the deal. 
That's not the outpouring of God's wrath upon David. It's not. This is not an outpouring of God's wrath. David is loved by God. So even this intensely painful consequence is an outpouring of God's love. And how do we know that? How can we tell? Well, there's a couple of ways. One is because he didn't treat David the way he treated Saul. Remember, God removed himself from Saul's life. He gave Saul over. It was as, it was as if God said to Saul, Hey, uh, you, you want something else more than me? Great. You go have it. I'm going to let you go. And he did. God removed his presence from Saul. And that was devastating to Saul's life. Saul's life was never the same at all after that. It was a complete train wreck from that point forward. God removed himself from Saul. And he didn't do that uh, to David. Um, if, we kept, if we could keep reading in Samuel, the other evidence that God had not left David is that David's life does change. David repents. You see this fruit of repentance being worked out in David's life. And you saw nothing of the sort in Saul's life. When God let Saul go, uh, you know, Saul spent pretty much every remaining day that he had seeking to kill David just out of pure jealousy. There was no reason for it. It was just that song that the women sang. David killed his, or Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. Saul just, he's not putting up with that. He's going to get this guy and take him out. And so, um, you can see these evidences of God's grace uh, in in David's life. Um, in chapter eleven, sorry, in chapter twelve, there, uh, verse thirteen, you find that one little comment, and there's all of this discipline, all of this um, painful consequence. But there's this one line here. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Okay, there's this hint of mercy right in the middle of this discipline. You can see it right there. And so in the next section there, uh, from 16 down to through 24, you see that um, this baby that Bathsheba gave birth to did in fact die. And in verse 24, um, we find one of the most beautiful passages, I would say, in the whole Bible. Think about this. Verse 24, 2 Samuel 12. Then David comforted his wife, who obviously was broken about the death of the child and the loss of her husband. David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means loved of the Lord. Called his name Solomon. Who in the world is Solomon? Solomon is the son of David who would be in the lineage of Jesus Christ. David sins in such an inexcusable way. Like there is no human excuse for this at all. There's no 
Um, it's just horrible. It's awful, right? Um, it's unthinkable. And there's these painful consequences that come. But in the midst of these painful consequences, a distant, distant grandfather of the Savior of the world is born to this man. With the one, David had lots of wives. That's a different sermon. Don't have lots of wives. Just have one. But, um, uh, but of all of the wives that David had, the lineage of the Savior was going to come through this woman, the woman with whom he committed adultery. And if that is not such a God thing to do, I don't know what is. Who thinks of mercy like this? Who shows grace like that? It is shocking. I'm not shocked that David sinned. I'm not shocked that people are terrible. But the grace of God is shocking. Why would he have anything to do with people like us? Why? What does he get? He wasn't in heaven lonely thinking, oh gosh, you know, I sure wish I had some friends. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't dissatisfied. There was this triune unity that was perfect. This love and fellowship that was perfect. And in God's goodness, God's mercy, he decided to make these humans and to save them, to show this grace that uh, they certainly didn't deserve. And in fact, he would show grace in spite of the way they were. It is shocking. I, I, just, I can't get over it. Um, so what, what do we learn from all this? What are some takeaways here? Uh, one, um, and Shane said this in our Sunday school class this morning, but one is our sin will always find us out. Always. There is no secret sinning. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. I buy into it sometimes. That is stupid. Uh, there is no secret sinning. Sin always finds us out. We know that God always knows, but in reality, it's hard to get away with anything in this world, right? Somebody's going to catch you, or your own conscience will wear you out. Or if you get away with all that in the world's eyes, God knows. There is no getting away with sin. We can see that here. David was so careful. It was night. It was, it was secret. He covered all the tracks. He thought he was going to smooth everything over. Nothing got smoothed over. He was caught right out of the gate. And that's one reason why sin is complete insanity. A second takeaway here is sin overpromises and underdelivers every single time. Every single time. It doesn't seem that David put a whole lot of forethought into what he did. But one thought he had is crystal clear. This was going to be worth it. It was going to be worth it. This was going to be worth it. Now, he didn't think about that for a long time, it doesn't seem. But he rationed that, hey, this was going to be a good idea here. This is really going to be awesome. Now, I can envision this going really well, and I'm pretty sure it is. Have you ever sinned and then looked back and thought, man, that was a great idea. Whew, I'm glad I did that. I've never, I've been sinning for 40 years. I've never done it. I've never looked back and thought, oh, that was awesome. Boy, that really delivered. Mm, that was it right there. Boom. I've never thought that. I look back and go, what was I doing? What was I thinking? 
Sin overpromises and underdelivers like nothing else in this world. Always. We need to be wise and avoid that. Just stay away, right? Um, we need to see sin for what it is. Uh, a third takeaway here is we need friends who will speak openly and honestly with us about our sin. We really do. Um, I so admire Nathan right here. I don't know. It doesn't say that Nathan was worried. If I'm Nathan, I might be a little bit concerned. Going to King, King David to tell this story. And I know he's a prophet. I know the Lord sent him. And I think sometimes we can kind of make it seem like, oh, well, that must have been really easy for him. He's a prophet. I mean, the Lord just sent him. So, of course, he's a man, right? I mean, go to the king and tell this little story about this sweet man and his little lamb. And he took such good care of it. He was part of the family. And then this rich man came in and killed it. And David, you're that guy? Who tells stories like that to kings? I need people in my life who love me that way. And I'm so thankful that I have them. I really do. Um, If you know my wife, she is legitimately one of the kindest most sacrificial, most loving humans I have ever been around, ever. Um, And she's super respectful of me, always. She always treats me with such honor and respect. But thankfully, she's not afraid of me. Like, she's not afraid to tell me if I'm not doing something right or if I, if I need to be doing something better or different. She will let me know. And I am so thankful to have that built right into my marriage, in my home. But I don't just have her. I have men. And I look around the church. I just go, man, the men that are in this church, I mean, I would struggle to put into words how thankful I am. Uh, I mean, I see so many faces just like, I mean, I'm enjoying this right now. Just going, oh, yeah, that guy, I've talked to that guy before. That, that guy would call me out. That guy would call me out. That guy would help me. That guy prays for me. That guy loves me. I don't know how people make it when they don't have that. I really don't. I don't know how people survive without somebody like Nathan who will come in and say, hey, you're in the wrong here and you need to repent. I need God. I need mouthpieces from God like Nathan. Um the fourth and, and final thing I'll note here is that um, God is faithful even when we're faithless. Yes, God disciplines his children. And yes, that discipline is painful. Hebrews tells us this, right? This is Hebrews 12. It's the same idea there. Uh, God disciplines those he loves. And so we should expect that. We should expect to be disciplined when we sin. But we cannot confuse that discipline with wrath. Wrath is what God's enemies get. Discipline actually confirms your sonship, your daughtership. Discipline is what fathers and mothers do for their kids, who they love, who they want what's best for. Discipline is what they get. Wrath is what God's enemies get. And if we're in Christ, we are not that. We are not God's enemies. Um, and so when you sin, don't run away from God. Don't hide from him. Adam and Eve tried that and it didn't work real well, did it? That little question in the garden, Adam, where are you? That wasn't for God's benefit, right? Like God wasn't going, man, I sure I can't find these people. Where are they? Right. 
that, clear, that question was clearly an indictment on Adam. Uh, it doesn't work to hide from God. Run to him, though, right? He's our refuge. He's our hiding place, our fortress, our strong tower. If you're in Christ, the fullness of the wrath you deserve was poured out in full upon Christ. As a result, God's settled disposition toward you is grace, just like it was David, just like it was David. And it's so easy to think, oh, man, but if you only knew what I've done, oh, my gosh. Did you hear this story? Have you murdered people before? I would suspect the answer for almost all of you is no, right? No, I've not murdered people, right? I mean, so uh, God's in the business of saving some really, really bad people. And so if in your mind you think, gosh, man, but I'm, but I'm really, really bad. Great. You're exactly the kind of person that God saves. It's you. The really, really bad one. The one, that, oh, Chad, if you just knew what I've done. You're the, you're the person. You're the prime candidate for grace, right? If you know you need salvation, if you know there would be nothing in this world that you could do to earn favor with God, you're exactly the kind of person that God's been in the business of saving since the beginning of time. You're exactly the kind of person. Um, and that, that story right there, the story of God's grace, um, it's the story of the whole Bible. It's the story of the entire Bible, cover to cover. Uh, there's a, a rapper, a Christian rapper, you may have heard me talk about him before, his name's Shy Lin. Um, he, has an, he has a song called Atonement Q&A, which is awesome, by the way. I love that a Christian rapper has a song called Atonement Q&A, but he does, it's really good. Um, and he asked this question, What's the Bible about? And the answer is man's complete ruin and sin and what God has done in Christ to bring us to him again. That is what the Bible is about. And you see that in the story in the life of David right here. You see man's complete ruin and sin. And you see what God is doing and would eventually do through David's lineage in Christ to bring us to him again, to restore that relationship. And so... Um, let's pray and we'll thank God for his mercy to sinners like David and to sinners like us. Lord, it is mind boggling that we can sit in this room as these sinful people and, and we can talk to you and you hear us. You listen. And we can do that on the heels of having opened this book and read your words to us. You speak to us and you allow us to speak to you. You have created relationship with sinful people. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. Uh, Thank you for showing mercy to the undeserving Lord, I pray that uh, um, I pray that we will see sin for what it is, and that we will hate it. That we'll realize it's, that we're going to find it to be found out. We're not going to get away with it, and it never delivers. It never does what we think it's going to do. It never has this great benefit. It is insane to sin, and I pray that we'll keep that in mind and be encouraged in that. 
And Lord, I pray that, uh, that we'll have, um, close relationships with godly people within the local church who love us, are willing to call us into account, who encourage us, pray for us, warn us, support us. And then, Lord, I pray that we don't ever lose sight of how gracious you are to sinners. Um, Lord, I pray that we won't confuse um, difficulty with wrath, the presence of difficulty or consequence or whatever it is in our lives. I pray that we won't confuse those things with wrath. When you discipline us, it is always in love and it's always for our benefit. And so we don't have to fear uh, your consequences. We don't have to fear uh, the loss of love, the loss of your presence. We don't have to fear those things. You are working for our good and you're making sure everything works for our good. And you're doing that in unstoppable fashion. So we praise you for that, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.